How's everybody doing? Hoping you're having a fantastic day. So we're going to be getting into the sixth video on the devil, uh, devolution, the development or evolution of Catholic dogma. So this should be really fun. I'm looking forward to it because this has been one of my favorite studies that I've been doing because I think this is uh, some of the more important things that we need to be focusing on. Uh, I think this pushes back against some uh, abuses of uh, the evolution of dogma that's taken by uh, liberals, some of the the uh, denial, false denials, I guess, from certain traditionalists. And also this is of apologetic necessity uh, because we do need to use this appropriately when we approach Orthodox and then also Protestants. And this is something that we're unique in as a church which is uh, both living and also identical in substantial form to what the church was in uh, the beginning as established by our Lord. So uh, definitely, uh, if you haven't watched the earlier videos, definitely do because a few of the things I'm going to say today Will not make any sense if you haven't watched the earlier videos so if you're watching right now haven't watched the earlier videos go watch them uh, each one of these are only 20 to 30 minutes long i like to keep them short uh, so i can more frequently uh, release these videos and then also uh, before we begin this will be the last video in the introductory sort of section after this we're going to be kind of diving right into a lot of select topics on the development of doctrine. So at this point, you should have a bit of a solid understanding of how things are going to look. And we're going to be sort of putting some putting some meat on the bones and looking at some of the historical errors of some theologians uh, when it came to how they interpreted this. And even uh, eventually, we're going to get into a bit of discussion about how Newman had some errors uh, taken from Suarez mixed with a little bit of his uh, Englishness. So uh, before we begin, I just wanted to remind you, if you do appreciate me doing this series, I will be doing a lot more series like these in the future. I hope that this sort of becomes the foundation for a lot of the work I do. Uh, I think this is something which is unique. Uh, not many people are doing things like this. I have a lot of uh, good topics planned out for the future for other series that I'm going to be diving into. But if you if you do really appreciate this and you would like me to do more of that, do consider becoming a patron on patreon.com slash militantomist. Helps me out and uh, allows me to dedicate a lot more time to this and to produce a lot more content. Uh, so definitely consider that. Okay, so I will begin. So what we need to uh, first distinguish, uh, because as I mentioned earlier before, I think two videos ago or three videos ago, when it comes to that second degree reasoning, uh, because we distinguish between the first degree, which if you don't remember is about uh, a premise and a conclusion that are only nominally distinct. For example, going from man to rational animal, uh, we're merely going from the obscure to the more clear. And then on the other side, you have the third degree, which is uh, from two really distinct uh, propositions. So it's going to be going from, uh, this is how we kind of think of experimental sciences, I guess you could say. We go from a certain principle and then you input some data and then out of it comes a 
solution that was not already contained in the principle. And then in between the two, what we have been talking about and what the most important uh, function of theology is, actually, it's not the most important function, it's the second most important function, sorry. The second most important function of theology uh, after uh, the contemplation and clarification of the revealed data into dogmas is going to be the drawing forth of theological inclusion and conclusions and then the synthesis of those conclusions. So this is going to be done in two ways. The first way, we already talked about that, essence to properties. Now, the second way is going to be from cause to effect. And these are going to stay objectively identical. So the premise and the conclusion are in object, in reality, identical. Yet there is a foundation reality for regarding them as distinct. So they are objectively identical, but subjectively distinct. They are distinct concept or distinct uh, rationes, which is the, the sort of uh, Latin term, which is which we try to uh, translate yet is kind of just um, intranslatable, I guess you could say, because it's like sort of that idea of something which is not purely nominal, that is not purely a difference in naming, but it's also not something which is objectively distinct in reality, but it also has some sort of foundation in reality and is distinguished in the mind. So you see it's, it's, it's between two extremes, but it's a bit difficult uh, for us to, no pun intended, conceptualize. So uh, we already went over uh, in last video, the first from essence to properties. So this is going to be from, for example, uh, ideal man to actual risibility or from uh, the basic essence of man to the potential for risibility or that 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 chart we had with six different options and uh, we distinguish between the various ways in which would be a second or a third degree uh, process uh, of uh, reasoning. So for this one, it's going to be a lot simpler, and this is going to be a much shorter video, which is kind of why I, I tried to preface it with a lot of details of where we've been, uh, where we're going, because this is a good, kind of a conclusion uh, video for the first part. So here we distinguish only between two different types of causes uh, in their relation to their effects. So the first type of cause is going to be a cause that is really or uh, as we say otherwise, and I think is more helpful, objectively distinct from its effects. So if we look at, for example, the relationship between fire and burning, fire and uh, the effect it brings about by burning, which is a, a burn thing, those two are objectively distinct. A fire uh, can be a fire without burning. Um, they are uh, completely separable. If the if the burn thing gets unburned, the fire doesn't uh, unfire. I guess you could say uh, it, the the two things are really distinct. It uh, you have to discover a new object in order to go from okay, this is fire to this fire has or is burning something. And we can uh, think of it the same as the relationship between a man and his child. Uh, a man and his child are really distinct. They don't imply each other. A, uh, a man could die, uh, for example, and his child be without the actual existence, uh, at least actual existence in the terms of bodily existence, of his father. And then a father uh, could, 
unfortunately, outlive his son, and his son die before him. And then the father would exist without the actual, that is, bodily existence of his son. They are really distinct. They are really separable. Uh, they, they do not imply the real existence of each other. Or, uh, actually, no, I, will, I won't even get into that. That's a, that's a bit uh, complicated. So, second, we can have a cause and effect that are not objectively distinct, but they're subjectively distinct. They're distinct in concept, but they are identical in object. So we are kind of drawing forth uh, a, a logical basis for the existence of the effect. Uh, the logical basis for the, the different concepts within a single object where we can order them. So uh, the traditional example is going to be that eternity. Uh, we may speak of it as uh, eternity in the soul or eternity in angels or eternity in God. But eternity is caused by immutability that actually that actually works kind of well because the differing degrees of immutability which are present in the human soul in the angelic uh, intelligence and then also in god these differing degrees of immutability result in differing degrees of eternity so when it comes to god uh, he is absolutely and in all ways immutable therefore he is absolutely and in all ways eternal he, does, he is not uh, under the effects of the movement or causality of time. So we may describe this actually uh, with a different term, which is it, it is the mere raison d'etre. And yes, I know that's not how the French pronounce it, but it's become basically an English word. So you guys can cry if you want to cry about my uh, pronunciation skills. But it's merely the raison d'etre of the effect. It merely explains the existence of the effect without, uh, well, it explains the concept of the effect, put it like that. But it doesn't explain the object, the object of the effect, to put it like that. So it explains uh, sort of that a concept within an object is, but it doesn't explain the object itself. So... Uh, the another another term uh, term that are used between these uh, first and second are going to be the difference between a cause that is physical, which is going to be the first one, and a cause that is metaphysical. But really, I think the terms uh, the cause uh, in intellect or in consideration or in thinking versus a cause in being or in existence or in essence are going to be more helpful. Because really the relationships, again, while they have a foundation of the thing, are going to be cause for our intellect, for the consideration in which we go through, because we are not, uh, we, we are not uh, simple intellects like the angels or God. We have to go through a process of what's called discursive reasoning. Uh, we, we know things bit by bit. So in relation to the scale, the first kind the cause uh, in being in existence, that's going to be one that is objectively distinct, as we already said. So it's going to be a third degree of reasoning. And then the second kind, the cause in thinking, in intellect, in cognition, however you want to put it, where the 
cause and the effect are objectively identical, but they're subjectively distinct by their concepts, that's going to be second degree of reasoning. So in the evolution of dogma, the modernists who are going to engage in the sort of transformistic thinking are going to say that dogmas can arise from the first uh, degree of uh, distinction. The first, uh, the first type of cause, that is, which is the third degree of distinction, where those who are Orthodox Catholics are going to say that it could arise a new dogma, quote, new dogma, which is objectively distinct with an old dogma, yet conceptually distinct, objectively identical, yet conceptually distinct. That can only arise from a reasoning that involves the second type of cause, the cause uh, which is cognition or between concepts or wherever you want to put it, because that is a second degree of reasoning and the the principle and the effect are going to be objectively identical. So this seems a bit uh, up to this point, a bit abstract, and it is a bit abstract, but, you know, uh, in order to uh, you, you guys are above the age of reason, I'm assuming. So you guys can engage in abstract thinking. So. Uh, and, and if you can't engage in abstract thinking, you're below the age of reasoning. Uh, do something better with your time. Uh, so when it when it comes to actual doctrinal uh, application of this principle, the the uh, most obvious way is actually going to be in the Tractate Uno, so the Tract on the Unity of God, or uh, some talk about uh, it on the existence, essence, and attributes of God, or, or however however you want to put it. So in De Deo Uno, we actually do have these relationships between uh, the second type of cause and effect. So it's going to be uh, first between what's called the metaphysical essence of God and the primary entitative attributes. So the relationship between God as actus purus, so God as pure act, and then also God as immutable. That's the relationship between the metaphysical essence and then an entitative attribute. So this type of reasoning is occurring here. And then in another place, we can we can also think of it uh, between what's called the primary entitative attributes and the secondary entitative attributes. So something like the relationship between God's uh, absolute immutability and God's eternity. God's eternity follows uh, as a logical effect of his absolute immutability. Because really, uh, eternity is absolute immutability in relation to time. So in theology, we actually do engage in this type of cause and effect reasoning, and it actually is going to occur a lot more places than you think if you just pay attention to the sort of argumentation that is going to occur uh, throughout reading, for example, the Summa. Uh, St. Thomas does this a lot more than you think. And once you start looking for the difference uh, between something which is, uh, on the one hand, notional, and on the other hand, might be a distinction between the essence and properties and another between the cause and effect, you're, you're going to start picking up on these things uh, throughout the way in which uh, scholastic theologians are going to argue for certain uh, propositions of theology or uh, articles of faith. So lastly, uh, I have this fun quote from Cardinal Cajetan uh, just to confirm 
uh, that this distinction is something which is common. He says, hence speaking formally, not uncommonly, is immutability said to be the cause of eternity and immateriality the cause of immortality and so on in other cases. So this is something that the Thomists have always recognized. And uh, this is something that John of uh, St. Thomas also speaks about in his um, cursus, uh, specifically talking about logic. And then Sylvester Ferreira also talks about this in his commentary on the, the Summa Contra Gentiles. Uh, so, so this is something which is thoroughly Thomistic. Uh, this isn't something which is a, um, a sort of made up thing in the 20th century to try to uh, try to capitulate um, away from the traditional Thomistic position, which some are going to say. So I didn't know uh, I was about to finish, but I, I, I need to get on my get on my um get on my uh, what, what what is it called when when you sort of start complaining about something and it's and it's something you complain about often. remember but yeah there are i can't can't find my thread on it but you if you look you'll eventually find a twitter thread where i did on this but yeah newman uh if you read his on the evolution of catholic dogma uh, also known as the the newman perone papers where he writes cardinal perone after his conversion it's very clear that newman is principally taking his view on doctrinal development from suarez and in suarez he had a weird view on the way in which uh, conclusions were virtually contained in their principles. So he couldn't figure out how the principle and the conclusion could be the same object and therefore both be of faith. So in order to explain it, he had uh, some type of continual revelation of the church, uh, improperly speaking. Um, so he had he had a weird continuing revelation view. And then uh, Molina and later Thomists, uh, two fell into this error where they overreacted against Suarez and started denying that theological inclusions could be defined of as faith. Um, so, so, and then the, the Scotus and the nominalists were, were on the other side saying, well, actually uh, the habit of faith and the habit of theology were never distinct habits. And therefore uh, in itself, Everything that has been uh, a theological inclusion was always of faith for those who were able to discover that it is. So you, you kind of actually have multiple different schools of development of doctrine, which arise by the time of Newman. And Newman actually takes one uh, strand of it, uh, which is coming from Suarez and then adds in a bit of his uh, a bit of his own things, which come from his Englishness, I guess, uh, is the best way of putting it, which is going to be uh, a a development which is based more upon the practical intellect than the speculative intellect. And it's going to be something which is driven uh, more by uh, uh, emotion than elation. Uh, so, so Newman does have some uh, particular uh, errors theoretically, although uh, in, in the whole, his work is within the bounds of Catholic orthodoxy. Uh, nothing is, nothing is in itself erroneous. Um, it, it's just not ideal.
uh, if you want to put it like that. And some in in and actually, if you do look through the history of Newman's writings, and this is something we're going to be getting into uh, a bit later in this series, if you look into the history of what Newman writes, uh, reflecting back on his own uh, thesis of doctrinal development, he's actually going to clarify and uh, correct a lot of his errors. And later, Catholic theology does the same thing with Newman. Uh, you see, this was something common uh, written about in late 19th century and throughout the 20th century of uh, of, of especially uh, Roman dogmatics, is they they do correct uh, some of what some of Newman's uh, errors on doctrinal development. So this this isn't something which was uh, secret or anything, and Newman wasn't uh, a a trailblazer by any means when it comes to uh, doctrinal development. He didn't even write the essay on the development of doctrine while he was Catholic. He was still Anglican when he wrote it. Um, so if if you take into consideration a lot of his later reflection, uh, a, a lot of things be, begin to make a lot more sense, especially when you look at the sources in which he was using, uh, which clearly were Suarez. Uh, you you see this. Uh, throughout a lot of his uh, post-Catholic writings, is uh, Newman was a was a Suarez fan uh, for sure, which wasn't too uh, unusual uh, during that time uh, before the Leo IX revival. Uh, even until uh, the 1930s and 40s, I I read a, an account of Father Austin Woodbury uh, say that there was not one Thomas Jesuit uh, left in Rome; that there were all Suarezians. Uh, so. It, I, I think I think Newman was actually trained in Gregorian, uh, Gregorian University, which would have been the Jesuit University. So things will make a lot more sense when you start looking at the personal history of Newman, some of the theological background of him, and then also the other schools of development of doctrine. Uh, it's perfectly licit uh, to hold to the majority position, which wasn't Suarez, uh, wasn't Newman's views, and most of later uh, Catholic theology corrected some aspects of Newman, and Newman even corrected himself. So... Um, Uh, comment on the dispute between uh, Gary Goulagrange and Marine Sola, please. I, I guess I'll, I'll be covering it a lot, a lot later. Um, but my thoughts on the dispute between Gary Goulagrange and Marine Sola, uh, basically Sola, uh, and, and, if, and if you didn't notice, my profile picture uh, right here is actually Marine Sola. So you can tell who I agree on, that, uh, on this with. So when it comes to the dispute, I think Garrigu, I think Garrigu actually, and uh, through, uh, I think he pronounced his last name Schultz, Father Schultz. Uh, if, if I'm horribly missing, I actually have the book right here. A friend sent it to me uh, so I can scan it. Um, so let's see how you how you pronounce. Yeah, he sent me it um, in his introduction uh, in, yes, it's Father Schultz. Father uh, Reginald Murray Schultz. Introduction uh, in the history of dogma. Oh, thank you, computer, for telling me it's 11 o'clock. So Father Schultz uh, was one of those responding to Marine Sola's uh, essays. And Father Schultz was the really the source for a lot of Garrigou's own uh, thought on this matter. So I think when it comes to Garrigou and Schultz, uh, and, and apologies if I'm just butchering that last name, but I think that Garrigou and Schultz have a very compelling philosophical case. 
because the whole question is surrounding whether the habit of faith could be specified by the same object, but a different formal consideration of that same object. So uh, considering uh, second degree, um, second degree of conclusion, second degree development, sorry, I don't know why I think of it as second degree of conclusion. So Father Schultz and Gehrig are going to say, well, when it comes to first degree, that's completely fine, because you're just clarifying notions. When it comes to second degree, you have a different notion, even while it's objectively identical. Where, on the other hand, Marine Soul is going to respond, well, actually, you, you can. Uh, if it's the same revealed object, the church sort of supplies that move uh, within that single object between different formal notions. So the church sort of nudges us along and helps us out in moving from one to another a formal aspect of the same revealed object. So I think, uh, at least to myself, the reasoning of, of Gary Gu and Schultz is a lot easier to swallow. It is a lot easier on the philosophical level. But what makes me agree with Sola has to do with the, the, the history of the development of doctrine within the church. I think it's undeniable from a historian's perspective, and we're going to be getting into this later, uh, looking at the different examples of this, but it is undeniable that theological conclusions have been defined as of faith by the church. It, it's, it's just impossible, I think, to, to disagree with that. So that mixed along with the fact that I think it's absolutely clear that before Molina and uh, and Suarez's spat in the late 16th century. Before that, looking back to uh, generations of scholastics, going all the way back to uh, really the Golden Age, uh, Bonaventure and St. Thomas write about this, that going back to the Golden Age of scholasticism, that there was these two schools. On the one hand, you had the Thomists and some of the uh, some of the Franciscans, and on the other hand, you had the Nominalists and some of the other Franciscans. And the dispute wasn't over whether theological conclusions could be of faith. The dispute was whether theological conclusions were of faith before or after the Declaration of the Church. It never entered the mind of theologians to dispute whether theological conclusions could be of faith. Never. Before the dispute between Suarez and Molina, it never entered the mind into the, into the mind of theologians. So from the historical positions of theologians and from the uh, historical uh, instances of the definition of theological conclusions, I think while it may be philosophically more compelling to hold the Garrigou Schultz view, absolutely it is um, it is absolutely more compelling on a a sort of concrete uh, lived experience of the church way uh, to hold to uh, the traditional Thomist position. I, I, I do I do think uh, the, the nominalist slash Scotist position, what eventually became the Scotist position, although I'm not convinced that Scotus himself held to it, uh, what eventually became the Scotist uh, slash nominalist position, I think it's crazy uh, to say that 
uh, theological conclusions are of faith before the definition of the church. I think it's absolutely nuts. Um, but that is the other position. Um, the third and the fourth position just don't exist until the 17th, uh, late 16th, uh, early 17th century. So that is my uh, ranting and raving about the uh, Gary Lagrange Marine Sola battle. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm entirely open, though, uh, to having my to having my mind changed. Uh, and definitely um, this this is just as much as a, an opportunity to teach as it is an opportunity to reflect on my own principles um, for sure. And I think actually that Schultz is being translated right now by Dr. Minard, if I remember correctly. So maybe when, when Schultz comes out and uh, I'm able to read it, I'm going to be uh, reading it soon in, in Latin which uh, doesn't exactly provide the the most uh, precision for me. Uh, reading in English is definitely a heck of a lot easier uh, for me. But uh, maybe, uh, who knows, uh, maybe eventually I'll be uh, doing a series on the, uh, on the Gary Goo Schultz view and how they would respond to some of the points which were made by Sola. And then you guys could basically make up your minds uh, for yourself. But I think, again... As philosophically compelling as it may be, it just loses historically uh, by a long shot in multiple different ways. Okay, uh, that's all I have. Uh, remember, uh, if you do appreciate uh, this sort of content, because again, this is unique content. Most other people are just uh, doing stuff on current events or uh, on whatever a new controversy has arisen or just general sort of apologetics. But if you if you do appreciate uh, scholastic theology for the people, uh, for normal people, uh, then definitely uh, consider subscribing, uh, becoming a patron, and sharing with your friends. So that's all I have, and God bless.